Welcome back. This is episode 71 of Herbological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. And and this fortnight we have an episode all about perhaps one of the dopiest looking snakes that has ever graced the planet. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, they're little freaks. Adorable freaks. Yeah, hilarious, quizzical little monsters. They are the Samboas. So yeah, the genus Eryx is the topic of discussion this bi-week, and that is thanks to our Patreon, Philip Iovino, who, who suggested this as a topic. So thanks very much, Philip. And uh, yeah, we managed to find... I've got to say, there is, as you'd expect, a lack of papers being published about Samboas. It's not a surprise because they're non-venomous. And... It's embarrassing to study them, isn't it? I mean, what, what do you ask Samboas? Oh, dopey snakes. <laughs> they're not cool, charismatic, like, tree boas. Yeah, tree boas are graceful. Sandboa? What are they doing? Right around they just, in the filth. Yeah, they're just sort of like hiding just under the surface with their weird little beady eyes. So, yeah, you're right. There's no glamour in sandboas, <laughs> which is unfortunate. <laughs> and that are, is reflected. They are wonderful snakes. They are, yeah. I'm, they're I'm absolutely joking. They're, not, they're, they're, they're brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I respect them a lot. Um, and I think that's because I like the idea of anything that kind of like sits in sand and tries to ambush things that are coming along. That just really appeals to me. It's sort of, sort of quite Star Wars-esque. Um, and we got some papers to that effect today. I but mean, yeah, while we were looking for these papers. Miniature Mongolian death worms. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But while we were looking for these papers, it was really hard to find anything like properly published about Samboas. So we've had to and go back recent, in time a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was that was the kicker was, okay, some people have done some work on these, but we try and keep up to date with things and that, that narrows and narrows down the number of articles you got. Then you've got to try and find ones that work like we can actually sort of discuss in a, in a sort of back and forth kind of way. Uh, yeah, a little bit tricky, but it, we, we pulled it out. We, we found some stuff. We did it. It's all right. Yeah, we did, we did, we did. And uh, yeah, I think it's quite cool. We've gone through, gone down the route of like one kind of meat meat paper, if you will, if you'll indulge me in that analogy. No. And then, uh, <laughs> and then two sort of small potatoes. Which <laughs> small fries, yeah. Yeah, the little notes. So um, yeah, if anyone's not familiar with Samboas, they're basically these quite short sort of stocky snakes very chunky generally and stocky is a good a good term for it yeah some of them have really round tails some of them have proper tails but one thing that most of them have in common is that their eyes are quite high on the head so not all of them but m many of them kind of bring an anaconda to mind where you've got the eyes sort of squashed slightly on top of the head and that's an adaptation for kind of being under the sand and poking out um it's true to varying extents depending on the species. There's around 14 species of Samboas depending on where you get your information. Reptile database has got 13, but then I remember we did the one the other day which I think makes it 14, mm -hmm. the new species. Um so yeah, there's you know, there's a it's a fairly species genus and um yeah, they're kind of distributed over Africa and Asia. And yeah, they're just these pretty cool, chunky little snakes uh, that have a funny, quizzical expression. And first paper we've got is actually really, really cool. It's um, 
about Dolo's Law. Should we introduce the paper? Yeah, go right ahead. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just jump, jump straight into it. So Lynch and Wagner, 2010, did egg-laying boas break Dolo's law? Phylogenetic evidence for reversal to other parity in sand boas. And that is published in Evolution. Yeah, so Dolo's law. This idea that an animal will never sort of... Oh, I was going to say de-evolve, but that's such a ridiculous phrase. Basically, <laughs> it will never reverse to a state uh, that it was in previously even under the same environmental conditions and selections and stuff. Basically, this idea that evolution is a one-way street and that nothing will repeat itself perfectly. Like, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. Basically, you can't throw things into reverse. Yeah. I think when uh, it was a Belgian paleontologist, Louis, Louis Dollo, and he yeah, basically said that an organism never returns exactly to its former state. Um but I think modern day scientists kind of approach Dolo's law slightly differently, where it's more like what you've described, where once a complex trait is lost, it's just really unlikely that it will come back. Um, yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's whenever you're... I just, I just feel like it often ends up being folly, uh, these, these, like, this idea of natural laws in nature, because there's always these weird exceptions. And You're totally right. I think I it's mean, just a good dollars. Dollars. You exactly. You had to add additional clarification there of complex traits. Okay, so what makes a complex trait versus a simple trait? Because a simple trait you could get back. I mean, that, you know, that might be something really, really simple, like I don't know, toenails or something. But what, yeah, what, how complex? It, it, it just gets all very muddy the closer you look to these things when you're dealing with absolute truths and the natural world. Yeah, I feel like a lot of these kinds of things are just really useful pivots to write papers around. Like, if it weren't for Dolo's Law, maybe this paper wouldn't be so exciting. But, like, these boas have broken Dolo's Law, guys. Everyone's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, but then it just, exactly, it's just a framing device, then, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like it. I think it's, I think it's fun and it, it helps you to remember. And also, I feel like if you can remember a few of these laws, you'll come across as, like, real smart. Just like someone mentioned Sambos in conversation. Your first thing you say is, oh, yeah, Sambos, the guys that broke Dolo's law. And everyone's like, whoa, <laughs> who's this guy? Dolo, okay. I thought that was a type of pizza. Yeah. But no, yeah. I, I wonder whether law should just be dropped and they that sort of be switched out for something like principle. Or now that we've seen it smashed, we could be calling it Dolo's ruse. Oh, I don't know. Ruse, ruse would imply a deliberate deceit. Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, the 1800s were a different time. It was probably believed to be a fact. But anyway, I think we've made the point that (laughs) Dolo's law is the idea that if a species... So let's use it as an example, the actual example that we're talking about. The ancestors of Samboas in the way distant... Well, well, basically the, the ancestor of the entire Eryx genus was a viviparous species, right? It's giving birth to live young. And yet, conspicuously, within sand boas, the Arabian sand boa, which is Eryx jayakari, and also the Saharan sand boa, which is Eryx mwelleri, are oviparous, right? They're laying eggs. So they don't fit into the pattern which is seen throughout the rest of the genus. And that 
aroused suspicion in the authors of this paper because, like I said, they're nested within this clade of exclusively live-bearing snakes. And that kind of got their research senses tingling and the senses that Dolo's law might be a goddamn lie. So, yeah, they decided to do a phylogenetic analysis of the entire genus, basically look at a bunch of genes and try and fit together how this whole genus is pieced together evolutionarily and see where these snakes fit and then looking at how likely different routes of evolution were, see whether or not, okay, these snakes actually descended from an ancestor that was oviparous and the other ones went viviparous, or they were of they were viviparous and then they subsequently evolved oviparity again. So they went from being live bearing to egg laying, which is pretty much compellingly what their evidence suggests, isn't it? Yeah, and just a little bit more context on that that switch from uh live bearing to egg laying so we've got 30 instances in snakes of that potential reversal right yeah i think yeah. that's what they said is that, in the paper, is, that yeah. what I'm, is that what i'm remembering correctly um mostly in vipers and colubrids uh no i think um no viviparities evolved that many times okay viviparities popped up in colubrids and vipers so they're yeah, the a bunch of times other than this example we're going to hear, they're the targets where it could have switched back, and in some vipers that may have been the case. Yeah, because you've got some weird egg-laying vipers that come out of nowhere, haven't you? Like, um, you've got the, what is it, the Ovophis, they're egg-laying. You've got, um, oh, what are they called, the giant ones? Um, Bushmasters. Yeah, Bushmasters lay eggs. And then you've also got the um, the one in Thailand, the one that bit that guy's shoe. The landmine. Oh, Malayan pits. Malayan pit viper. Hey, that's the one. Yeah, of course, with so, nest, nest building and whatnot. Or, yeah, or so you've egg got protection, a bunch, sorry, not nest building. You, yeah, you've got a bunch of these vipers that sort of, it's like, what? Why are you laying eggs? Um, so, yeah. So, potential other candidates for that yeah. version, rever- reversal, even. And I mean, I'm, I'm ignorant of the evolutionary history of those snakes what I just said they might have already been disproved that they haven't broken Dolo's law but I don't know it it depends where they fit in amongst other vipers and whatnot doesn't it yeah Um, but lizards lizards are more examples of this switch and it certainly seems to be more fluid in lizards there was a cool uh, Laird et al paper last yeah yeah 2019 um, looking at this this skink um what was it called? Cyphrus Equilus? Nice name. Equilus? 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 Um, and they had an instance where a single individual produced a clutch that contained live and egg uh, young. So what? Both? Whereas mostly this skink is, is viviparous, live-bearing, there are instances where it will lay eggs in certain localities or under certain circumstances, it would seem. And then they, they were talking about this this example where it did both at the same time, suggesting that it's, yeah, there's more, more to it, or it's in the process of switching from one to the other, or it is um, being driven by something something else, something external, maybe environmental factors, something along those lines. That's super weird that they it is weird. in one clutch there was some giving you know some coming out of an egg and some not. That's so strange. That's just utterly bizarre. 
There's another example where Dolo's Law has also been broken by a lizard, and it's actually one of our native species, um, the common lizard in the UK. The Vivaparous lizard. Yeah, the Viviparous, yeah, exactly. The Viviparous lizard itself actually has switched back to egg laying in some populations in Spain, Italy, and Austria. So, yeah, literally doesn't like the name. They're going to have to change the name. Well, they can't, but still. But that was a paper from 2018. So it seems like, yeah, certainly in the, uh, in the, in more recent years, Dolo's Law is looking on shakier and shakier ground. Hmm, which is interesting, isn't it? Which is interesting. Yeah. It's this seemingly unlikely occurrence. Dolo's getting nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's there's good examples in lizards, but I think this is the first paper to talk about it in snakes. And, yeah, as we discussed earlier, there's this impression of Dolo's law that traits can't be regained, but more so can't be regained in the same form. So... This has also been shown in lizards, which have regained digits following losing them in their evolutionary history. So there's a genus of lizards called Bachia, which lost a digit on their hand, and then they subsequently regained it. But when you look at the bone morphology of that species compared to other similar, closely related lizards that never lost the digit and then re-evolved it, they have... um, very different morphology that makes up the inside of that finger so that's kind of an example of Dolo's law that although they've got it back and it does the same thing it will never be the same because different processes have led to its re-evolution and led to its evolution the first time round albeit subtle ones yeah which makes the whole thing a little bit odd in 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 my opinion because then you're like what's more (laughs) what's more useful in terms of understanding how evolution works, its impacts on traits and uh, sort of phenotypic features, i.e. this animal has hands, or very specific ways those are constructed. And yeah, you're dealing no, with different very... questions on different scales, and therefore Dollar's Law becomes less and more useful depending on the question you're trying to answer. Because if you were trying to answer, okay, what is the purpose of animals having hands you wouldn't really care how those hands were made as such if they were performing the same function. Yeah, I was going to argue against you and say that the best thing to do is get bogged down in the minutiae, but you're probably right. <laughs> hey, I mean, minutiae, or if, if you're asking a question that's looking at, uh, I don't know, the development of hands in, in lizards or something, then it's probably quite important because they might actually be developing in different ways. But if you're looking at something more broad and ecological, which is what we tend to be more interested in, to be frank... Yeah. The fact that they have hands and maybe can climb a certain way or something would be of more interest. And in that case, these traits would be indistinguishable and therefore Dolo's law being being largely false. But again, it's, it's, it's a question of scale. It's a question of, um, I guess, fidelity or something along those lines. Some fancy word like that. Hmm. Yeah, go with fidelity. Sounds nice. So, yeah, the point is... When these things re-evolve, they re-evolve differently. And the same is true for the Arabian Samboa. I must say, we did mention at the beginning there was two species of Samboa which are going around laying eggs. And yes. one of them is only mentioned in the introduction. Presumably they didn't have access to any genetic data for um, Eric's Mwelleri? Um, They state somewhere why it was missed. Mwelleri is not included in this study because it's... Because it sucks. We hate Mwelleri. 
Yeah, but that's not the one so we really free. care about. We care about... No, Moira is the one we're looking for. Why is it not included? Oh, I think it's because it's 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 very tightly related to the one we do care about. Um, basically, I'm say, I, they say it's not included. They don't say why it's not included, but they say that it's because it's so closely related. Hmm. Because of its position within the phylogeny, um, it wouldn't really matter. So it's this sort of thing of, okay, it doesn't matter that it's missing. They don't say why it's missing, but presumably it's a... Um, not having access to materials for that snake. Are they saying that Moelari and Jayakari are so closely related that it's not a big deal? They're going to be similar in what they find? Well, the exact... I mean, I can read the exact wording. Finally, although Moelari is not included in this study, its uh, phylogenetic relationship to the other species of Eryx is not vital for our inferences that a partial reversal occurred, although depending on its relationship to other Eryx species more than one reversal may have occurred. So essentially it is nested within Erex, so it doesn't impact the uh, ancestral uh, inference, I think is what they're getting at. But if it right. was, if it ends up being right next to this other species, um, okay, that's one reversal. If it ends up being somewhere else within the Erex tree, then there might be evidence for a second reversal. Hmm. It would have been nice to see that though. Well, I'm sure. Th- I'm sure there was a good reason for it because it's not the sort of thing you just like. Yeah, whatever. We we'll just ignore that. Yeah. One. No. I'm maybe sure there's, there's just. No... I'm sure there's a good reason. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the Sahara is probably not the easiest place to go and collect a snake, so perhaps there's not any uh, de- genetic bits and bobs they can use because they did really well getting genetic stuff from other species in mm-hmm. the genus, didn't they? They had lots. They had quite good um, sampling. Okay, fair. They didn't have great coverage of every species, but they got quite a bit. They got averaged around 30% of what they got for the best one. For the, for well, and them, considering so. how many nuclei, uh, nuclei, how many how many loci they were targeting, they had 21, was it? Yeah, 21 different loci split between mitochondria and nucleus. So that was a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of genes. Yeah, yeah. And it is quite normal to have that kind of gap because of the way that these things go like you just can't especially when you're you know they haven't necessarily gone out and um done all the sequencing themselves they've actually just gone on gem bank gem bank for a lot of this stuff so yeah it really depends on what stuff. other people yeah. have put together and put up there because yeah this would be a, a really big undertaking for one group of scientists to do um but yeah no not to not to discredit the paper it's great but uh yeah so they had in their phylogenetic analysis, they didn't just have Eric Semboas. They had 44 species from the family Boidae, 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 however you want to say it, um, which is cool. So you actually got to see how these things are related to like really interesting snakes like Boa Constrictor and, um, you know, some of the tree boas. Other interesting species. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, they're all cool, aren't they? Everything they about are, is pretty Yeah, awesome. you're looking down this list and... They sort of all de- all deserve a mention in some in some way. I was quite I- intrigued to see that Candoya um, and Eryx were most closely related. So the Candoya are the ones that live out in the Pacific Islands, um, and obviously they've got every species of uh, boid here. But yeah, just the fact that they're most closely related to these mm. sand boas is surprising because if you look at Candoya, they not what you'd anticipate, which is quite cool. But then those things are in the middle of nowhere in an ocean they don't belong. So, yeah, they're no doubt they're phylogenetic. <laughs> Who knows what happened there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's super random. So, 
but basically, so they, they've got all these genes, they've got all this lovely phylogenetic tree, and um, the, the sort of simple version of it is you've got two options of, of what's, what's occurred within this genus or this whole scenario. So you've got option one, you've got one big change to live birth quite early on, affecting a lot of the boas, pretty much all the boas, and then this instance of a reversal for this species of Arix. Then you've got option two, where there were no reversals. So everything started, uh, everything started egg laying. That's, that's pretty much agreed upon that the, the ancestral state for snakes, lizards, and whatnot was egg laying. So you got that default. But then there were multiple changes over different periods of time to live birth. So you've got one instance with one big change and then a reversal. You've got another option where no change, uh, you know, no grand change, but lots of smaller changes to live birth. Is that making? Yeah. Yeah. Broadly. So either the ancestor to Eric's was live bearing or not. And obviously, like, if you go, it, yeah, I think, so what you're saying is the, there's either two snakes going from live bearing to non live bearing, or there's like 20 going from egg laying to live bearing. Yes. Yes, it's yes, it's either a lot of single changes or one single change but a reversal. Which one's more parsimonious? Ah, well, this is this is where they're getting into. It, it seems super super likely that the ancestral state for Erix and Erix and Condoya uh, was viviparous. That yeah. their models are showing is is really 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 likely. So you have that life bearing. We're talking ninety nine point seven percent likely. Yeah. So if that's already live bearing, it's pushing it towards option one, where there's only been this reversal to egg laying. Otherwise, you're dealing with. Well, otherwise, I mean, I, I don't even know how that would make sense if if you're really confident that that ancestor is uh, live bearing. You've got to have a reversal, right? <laughs> like, that's what that's saying. There's, there's no. Otherwise, we're going back and forth, back and forth. So yeah, that's a pretty just, strong argument for option one. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's definitely, or as far as we've got in the data, that's what happened. These two species have come from a genus which is giving live birth, and they've subsequently re-evolved laying eggs, and they haven't done it that well. If you look at the pictures, I'm going to be honest. I'm not being horrible to these boas, but the eggs they lay look disgusting. Okay, they look like a <laughs> melted, blooming drumstick lolly in the sun. They're like pink and soft, and yeah, they, just they are pretty. Look wet, pretty soggy, crummy little eggs, aren't they? They're not good eggs. Um, and the baby boas themselves, because they're boas and they haven't got any right being inside an egg, they don't even have egg teeth. So when it comes to, you know, most snakes and most uh well squamates have a little egg tooth on their lip when they first uh come out of the egg and that allows them to like slice and dice and what they'll do they'll slice the egg and then once they've sliced it they'll kind of sit in there you know sometimes for a few days just chill out absorb the yolk try out breathing oxygen for the first time but these baby sambos don't really have that luxury because they don't have an egg tooth so they have to basically forcibly smash their way out of these eggs using brute force and flailing around and yeah, it's just not as graceful. It's not, you know, you can just tell that yeah, so they've optimal. evolved to be in an egg pretty recently and they kind of 
you know, they're not making the best deal of it. But nevertheless, you know, they are coming out in an egg. What I thought was also really cool was that um, the Mwellerite eggs, they actually only incubate for about 14 days. So from egg laying to egg hatching is only 14 days, which is a tiny amount of time for snake eggs. It's much more usually like a couple of months. And that is the case for um, Jayakari, which is the Arabian Samboa. And that one takes 66 days from eggs laying to hatching. So you've already got this like difference between the two species. And it's quite cool because the scenario that's usually invoked to explain the origin of viviparity is prolonged egg retention leading to live birth. So, you know, you get a shorter and shorter and shorter incubation period after the mm-hmm. eggs are laid until yeah. you get to a point where the eggs stay in the mother until completing us a perfect baby. Yeah. Ding. But... What this shows, if you look at Mwellerai and Jayakari, with the difference, you know, Mwellerai eggs only taking 14 days, it seems as though that um, transition from live bearing to egg laying is just the transition from egg laying to live bearing happening in reverse, right? So you have like a continuum where the incubation period, rather than getting shorter and shorter, is potentially getting longer and longer. And then it's suddenly more efficient to do that or do a lot of the work outside of the body, right? Rather than lugging exactly. around eggs for half a year. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, they talk about a few reasons for this in the paper, don't they? Where viviparity basically encourages the relative clutch mass to decrease. So there's less weight inside the female as she carries the babies to term. So that doesn't necessarily mean there'll be less babies, but quite often the babies will be very small if Mm -hmm. the mother's giving birth to live young. What eggs allow you to do is to invest more energy just having bigger eggs and bigger babies, bigger clutch mass. And then when you lay it, you haven't got it in your body anymore, so you can just move on. Because if you had massive babies inside you, I mean, you see it here in the UK, the common lizards we mentioned earlier, some of those things when they're pregnant, like they are huge <laughs> to a point where they can they can barely even operate. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and they have to do that because they live in a, an unpredictable climate and what have you, you know. But when these Samboas seemingly returned to super hot climates in like, you know, the Sahara, for example, no longer was it beneficial to keep the babies on board mm. for as long as possible. More predictable, and so they, more stable. You're not going to get caught out by some bad weather as you know as frequently, perhaps. Precisely, and they're like, well, okay, then we can have some bigger babies if we just drop them off earlier, and that seems to be what they're mm-hmm. doing. You know, that's not definitely empirically proven, but it's quite a compelling argument. Well, that's that's exactly it. You've got these multiple lines of evidence that seem to be tallying up quite nicely. First, the uh, phylogenetic stuff suggesting where these traits were lost or regained. You've got the the egg. Uh, tooth missing aspect and then you've got this additional uh, I suppose environmental context which makes a lot of sense for them to be reversing precisely yeah and I think um, yeah they've really stuck it to the man Dolo here <laughs> yeah I suppose so <laughs> no I yeah I think uh, shouldn't shouldn't disparage the name of Dolo sure he's a really good guy and uh, yeah, I mean, I personally, I, I I want to read some more stuff about Dolo's Law until it's completely obliterated by <laughs> reptiles just completely disobeying it. Yeah, well, this is a very nice example and a and a neat paper. Yeah, and it's got nice pictures too. I mean, just seeing the baby Sambo as being born in any form is magical. And um, yeah, seeing their weird pink eggs, it's entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose yeah. if you're entertained by things that are slightly disconcerting, 
Yeah, lovely. Cool. Well, from what comes out of Samboas to what goes into Samboas. Oh. Yes. So, uh, we've got a couple, a couple of little notes chatting about Sanboas eating things. And I guess we'll start uh, with the Lobo and Stripada paper in 2015. First report on Whitaker's boa feeding on a uh, common vine snake. Published in I think that the Reptile Wrap. A.K.A. the newsletter of the South Asian Reptile Network. Mm-hmm. And I think the common sweet. vine snake is a misnomer for this snake because I didn't ever see one when I was in Thailand where you are and they are allegedly there. We found one on the road run over once, but that's it. You ever see one out there? Um, gosh, I think I've only seen dead ones. Hmm. Which doesn't really count in, yeah. in, in my books, really. No, it's weird, isn't it? Uh, Prasana is everywhere, but uh, Nasita just yeah, didn't really see. Yeah, no. Either way, maybe they will be consumed in India. by uh, rogue rogue sandpowers. It's quite possible. I think yeah. it's nearly, impo- so, nearly impossible. We've ne- <laughs> sandpowers aren't here. No. I wish they were, though. No, they're not. I do as well. It's really cool. But yeah, Whitaker's boa. I mean, this note is like pretty much, the title really is all you need. It's one of the shortest notes I've ever read. Basically, the Whitaker's boa, which is a cool little, um, he's a cool little species of uh, boa. Um, what do they look like? I mean, they look kind of generically samboary, but... Um, I don't know. I would, I would describe these guys as looking like a cross between a samboa and a more uh, traditional, like, python. I know what you mean, yeah. They're a little bit more classy. Yeah. Yeah, they they look a little less dopey than some other sandboas. They've got quite a sort of Burmese python esque pattern, right? As well, haven't right, they? that's what I'm thinking. A little bit more patterning, a little bit more of a uh, triangular shaped head. Hmm. Yeah, they're really really beautiful. Um, and yeah, their eyes aren't quite so high on the top as they are in other sandboas. They're a little bit more on the side, which gives them a slightly nicer aspect. Hmm. But yeah, a beautiful snake, and. Um, yeah, I mean, as they're reporting on in this note, basically what happened is the Whitaker's boa ate Ayatollah Nasuta, the common vine snake, which is weird because the vine snake is this really slender arboreal snake, non-venomous. Well, least, weak, weakly you know. venomous, I think, is the, uh, yeah. it's, it's one of these rear fangs jobs, isn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's... It's just random because how did these two snakes even come into contact? I mean, the Whitaker's boa looks to be strictly ter- uh, terrestrial. And in the pictures, it's eating the Nasuta on the floor. So either the Nasuta was like, oh, I'm just going to do a little flurry along the ground <laughs> and ran into this. Yeah, little unexpected Whitaker's boa just chilling out and then ate it. But yeah, they didn't actually witness the um, predation, did they? They just found it consuming mm. it. So Which I feel is a little bit of a mystery. Most cases, when people see snakes eating things, it's very unlikely to see the snake actually get something. That's a flash of the second of digef- you know, uh, digestion. Um, the uh, ingestion of the prey taking so much longer, so you're more likely to find it, right? I did like their, yeah, yeah. their little comment um, of mentioning green vine snakes feeding on shield-tailed snakes uh europeltus macrolepus so maybe maybe the green vine snake was sitting up there in a bush or something spied a little tasty meal on the floor thought all right 
I'll slide down and get that. Next thing it knows, it's eaten that snake, and another snake's eating that. <laughs> Russian dolls or something. That would be completely bananas. And then in this area of, uh, you know, maybe a, a king cobra could sneak up and uh, eat the sandbow, and then we'd have a snake oh, and a snake and a snake. Give me a, a break. Snake. Give me a break. That be king cobra. Every time a king cobra comes to be a snake, it ruins everything. <laughs> It literally just leave the snakes alone guys I'm still bitter because of that green pit viper we were tracking that got eaten which I blame on the king cobra well I mean <laughs> damn you done it before. I'm sure they're, I'm yeah, sure they're, they're somewhere it's occurring right now yep you're absolutely right um, but yeah this is just a weird observation and if you want to know what the pictures look like what you've got is a big fat snake eating a really thin snake <laughs> the fat snake is brown and speckly the <laughs> Fin snake is green. Very green, with a <laughs> yellow little belly. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a nice example of how different two snakes can be. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's just mental. You just wouldn't expect to see it. It just goes to show, doesn't it, that snakes are sort of quite opportunistic. Mm. And uh, yeah, the other unusual the, the, thing, this is the only time. Sorry, cutting across. The, the other unusual thing before we wrap up this one, um, it occurred in the late afternoon. And largely, the sandbowers are presumed to be either nocturnal or active in the very early morning. So it was, that's just an additional, oh, this is odd, instance of something happening. Yeah, happening in someone's garden by the sounds of it. Probably hence it being seen. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, um, so that is Eric's Whitakarai eating a sandboa. Sorry. Yeah, the uh, Samboa is, well, I don't know if you'd even call Whitaker a Samboa, but obviously it's Eric, so potentially it is. Um, but yeah, eating a skinny snake. And they also eat other stuff. Um, the other paper we have found is Arabian Samboa, Eric's Jayakari, preying on Arabian toad-headed agama, Phrynocephalus arabicus which sounds like a delicious coffee a nocturnal to diurnal species interaction so again you've got some strange nocturnal activity here this time we're talking about eric's jayakari which as we know is famous for obliterating dolo's law doesn't care about dolo's laws no time for dolo's law the, the author and where it was published and stuff no i didn't <laughs> it's by Londe, and it's published in Herpetology Notes in 2015. <laughs> Sorry, I just got distracted by I know, you, my I, admiration I, for the Jayakari. I could feel the, uh, the energy. <laughs> so yeah, we've already discussed this snake a little bit. Um, Arabian sand boa. And yeah, it lives in the Arabian Peninsula, southern Iran, and it's highly adapted to life in sandy deserts. It burrows around in soft sand, and it's like a little... They just, they are liking it to a sandfish. Which and I think is a gross, gross insult. Fair, fair. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool compared to a sand... Well, sandfish are quite cool as well. Um, but yeah, basically... So it sounds like the author was walking through... A sandy area with his sister, who is credited in the acknowledgements for actually spotting this interaction. Um, so, big up Juliana Marzi. And, oh no, that's the photographer. <laughs> Raffaella. Raffaella spotted it. And basically what it is, is a sand boa in the sand, right? It looks pretty Classic. cool. The photo's awesome. Yeah. 
and it's just got about the front third of its body out, which is constricting the toad-headed agama, um, which is really cool. Like it looks as though the snake has burst out of ambush and got hold of this. Yeah, it's, it's got its got its its head, its head, its mouth on one of the lizard's forelimbs, and it's got a coil uh, pinning its head, neck, sort of forebody. Uh, against the sand, and the rest of the snakes out of out of view, buried amongst the golden sand. Yeah. The only problem with this is that we don't know how the interaction would have ended, and this is a good learning opportunity for everyone. And in the, in the there's a bit in the paper where it said, when I touched the snake, the lizard was released and immediately ran away. So, I mean. It's up to you, I suppose, if you encounter a predator interacting with its prey, who you side with. But generally, I would say the advice would be to kind of just let nature be nature. Um, but, you know, no judgment. Touching snakes is hard not to do. So, but maybe a little bit of judgment, just a small amount. Well, I mean, I think, I think we're agreeing that don't do it. Yes. Yeah, don't do it. Don't touch it. But, you know, the Agama lived to see another day. The snake wasted some energy trying to kill an Agama that was assisted by a gigantic, unexpected titan. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, a, co- a cool observation. Um, again, at a odd odd time, potentially. Again, these species supposedly meant to be uh, nocturnal. But this was observed at, what, 20 past 8 in the morning? Uh, there's a suggestion yeah. that perhaps where the locality itself, maybe the cool air from the sea or something along those lines, some sort of, I was going to say microhabitat features, but I suppose cool air from the sea is more macro than anything. But either way, something specific to the locality, maybe aiding Eric's to make use of the early morning before things heat up. There's some suggestion that, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's not just going after resting diurnal species at night. Maybe there is this this element of ambush predator with its little beady eyes stuck on the top of its head, waiting for an unexpected agama to come strolling by and getting got. I think it's going to be tricky to work out. I mean, we've we've discussed many times how studying uh, fossorial or semi-fossorial species is incredibly difficult. They're hard to find. They're hard to observe because. You know, you can't see through the sand. But this this note offers a little bit of an insight. Maybe these these sandbows lives are more proactive or varied, not just limited to nocturnal activity than we than we once suspected. Yeah, I mean, it could be that they're... I mean, they're, they're, we know that because we tried to find papers that there's really not a lot written about these guys. So it could just be that they're more active, more likely to be active on the surface at night, which is when people encounter them on the surface. Perhaps, it's not to yeah. say that during the day they're necessarily just sleeping. I mean, I feel like if a snake is... I feel like the majority of snakes, if they're resting somewhere, in this case under sand, and if they feel that there's an opportunity to eat something, they'll usually take mm-hmm. it, I would imagine. I mean, I can't imagine... Many ambush predators just being like, oh, there's a prey there, but it's day, so I'm just going to chill. And you've got this additional difficulty with snakes. Well, and, and a lot of reptiles. Well, I suppose, I suppose snakes especially, is you've got these long periods of inactivity anyway that isn't resting as such. I mean, we talked well, a while ago about uh, digesting prey and the, um, the stress or the amount of effort required to digest prey for, I think it was boas or something. So this, this inactivity... You know, quote unquote, isn't inactivity, 
but it does prevent us from observing what's going on. So you might get this this dual, like what you're saying with it's just when they're observable, but also like such a small amount of their time they can be observable as well, which which makes things doubly as tricky. Yeah. It's just they they have they have different lives to us. That they do. That they do. You got anything else on this? Uh, I was just trying to think. I don't think so. No, I think we pretty much nailed it. Like, it's just, you know, it's a sambo eating a lizard, isn't it? Yeah, they do make a nice point about elliptical um, pupils in potentially indicating a more flexible diurnal nocturnal lifestyle. So you've, you've basically got an eye that can adapt to dark and light relatively well while keeping some fidelity. Um, that's kind of neat. But a lot of the yeah. inferences you've made Based on that, you need you need this additional like activity data, which is going to be tricky to uh, get. Um, if you catch Somebody please a bunch of sand boas. They're pretty chubby snakes, so you could put in a put in a, a decent sized transmitter. Yeah, mate, get a BD two in well, there. Well, you you put in you specifically put in a BD two or something equivalent. But what you do is you modify it so it's not giving out a signal frequently enough for active tracking. And you forgo, forgo the uh, spatial and movement aspects of the study. Instead, you do what they did with, I think it was Boiga irregularis, and I think they've recently done something similar with rattlesnakes. So instead of having the radio transmitter as your primary data collection thing, you just have that so you can collect the snake at the end of the study. And instead, you stick in there a little um, like accelerometer switch that will pick up when there's activity or not, when there's movement or not. Stick them in the snake, let the snake go. Try and avoid the issues of uh, the radio transmitters running out of battery and limiting the length of your study by forgetting that aspect. And then you go back, scoop them back up, get the data from the activity little switches and investigate activity specifically. That might give you a clue of when they're moving, when they're not moving. Um, Hmm. Some of those electro uh, accelerometers as well. You can get the data through Bluetooth, so right. you check them. That you know, would be you pretty have to wait neat. The end. I don't know if accelerometers would be a bit too big because I'm thinking the switches are, I think, pretty small. I, I think accelerometers can get pretty yeah. tiny these days, and these are pretty beefy snakes. It would be interesting. I don't know how well the accelerometer would work. Like, I don't know how subtle the movements can be for accelerometers to pick up. I don't know how sensitive they are, but. Something like that would, I mean, if you could, if you could sort of partially estimate how deep into the sand they're going and things like that, that'd be phenomenal. Yeah. But again, you might be running into battery life issues with something more complex like an accelerometer, as to as opposed to this uh, this switch. I just want to see some images of like three dimensional snake movement Man, patterns under sand. That'd be phenomenal, wouldn't it? Through accelerometry, you've seen those for the penguins. Mm-hmm. It's pretty well. It is mad. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Okay. So that's all we need. We need some serious funding and we need to get somebody studying these Eric's boas because quite frankly, they're too cool to be so unknown. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There we go. Someone get on that. Yeah. Stat. Cool. Well, I think that just about wraps up pretty much all the published literature on some boas. (laughs) That's not true. That's not even close um, to being true. No, but there is a, there is a, a definite lack. So, um, yeah, they're doing some cool stuff. And, uh, yeah, they are 
probably, like anything else, quite surprising in their ways. Um, it's probably a snake that's easy to look at and, you know, make a lot of sort of quick snap judgments on how they might behave, mm-hmm. but in actuality, it's probably a lot more complicated. It's a... Oh, come on. Any Anything, anything. You look in more detail, it becomes more complicated. I feel like it's super rare to find something that is as it as it seems. Yeah, that's true. Cool. So, um, should we move on to the brand new species of the bye week yeah I, I, I think we should do that a new species of oligodon from the Langbian Plateau southern Vietnam um, with additional information on oligodon ananensis uh, which we probably won't go into in a massive amount of detail because, uh, you know, we're just talking about the new species. But if you're interested in Elegodon at large, this would be a cool paper for you to read because not only have they described a brand new species, but they've also given a lot more data on another species, which was quite largely unknown, particularly morphometrics and stuff. But regardless, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, extra... I think there's a lot of gaps in some of the Elegodon stuff. Um Certainly looking at some of the previous papers that have described that ligodons have been done on very few uh, specimens and some of them appear to be relatively cryptic when you're you know, just observing the uh, the uh, snakes. So that's, you know, actually talking well, about ligodon, one... you never guess what I saw the other day, strolling around, having a fine old time, but a little ligodon pseudotenialis. Where was that then? Uh, just maybe... 60 metres from the from the house, just bumming around on a little bit of path, doing some foliage. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Tiny little guy. Yeah, so Elygodon. You mentioned that uh, there's lots of in uh, species which have been described maybe from just one individual. And this yeah. is another one uh, that fits into that category. There's just one male. Um, and I think the other reason a lot of these species don't have much information on them is because they're so new. Like, this is a genus which is just massively on the up and up. They're, there's... 80 species now, 24 of which in Vietnam. And I think mm-hmm. eight of the ones in Vietnam have been described in the last 10 years. So it's a genus which we're learning a lot more about in a really rapid time. So yeah, yeah any paper like this, which facilitates us learning about more than one, is probably very welcome to the Ligodon experts the world over. Uh, and yeah, so the authors found this adult male, Ligodon, and they were like, well, that looks a bit like Ligodon anamensis. But it wasn't. And this was back in 2017 during some field surveys. And they collected this snake on a steep slope near to a mountain summit in Montane Evergreen Pine Forest. And sure enough, it was a brand new species when they looked at it closely. Had a look at a couple of its genes. And yeah, decided to name the brand new species Oligodon rostralis, which is derived from the Latin word rostrum for snout or beak. And it's because... It's got a little pokey nose, which is quite distinctive. Super pokey nose, actually. Like, yeah. its its bottom jaw is way further back than you'd expect. Yeah, it's got a real overbite. Yeah, like, the bottom jaw is behind its nostril. It's pretty pronounced. Yeah. And so, Elygodon, just to give some background on Elygodon, they're Elygodon, they're kukri snakes. So they've got these really large, um, specialised... Are they their rear fangs? 
they've got two i think they must be they've got these massive teeth sure. that slice they slice and dice basically and uh, they use them they think to kind of pop frogs that try swelling up as a defense mechanism um but i think i've not seen any evidence of it but i think they probably also use them in battle with each other to some extent um what what makes you say that well, I've, I saw a couple of male oligodons with like massive slices on them. Oh, okay. And I was like, hmm, could that have been? And there was a lot of discussion at the time. I mean, I don't think anything's been written about that, but yeah, I don't know. It just like, it just, it just kind of looked like something had had a go at it. And it was, yeah, it was a lot of different, a lot of individual slices as well, which you'd think if it was a predation attempt, I don't know. You don't, it's, it's conjecture basically, yeah. but I have my suspicions. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I tend to feel like biting in, in male-male combat is less common with snakes, but then it is a non-venomous slash potentially very, very weakly venomous or weak, either, either way, venom not being a, a, a big deal in it, so perhaps it doesn't have the same uh, impact on male-male combat as perhaps other species, so maybe it is, maybe it is possible, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is that. I think that's the thing. It's possible, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Oh, here we go. Territorial behavior in Chinese. Oh, okay. There's like, there's some stuff. If you Google it, <laughs> that might be the case that actually it's like well recorded. Huh? Fair enough, man. <laughs> <Some of it. laughs> Can't know everything about everything, can you? Oh, okay. Yeah. So the teeth are also used for slitting eggs. That's important to mention. Oh, frogs and eggs and presumably frog eggs. Three males, two exhibiting fresh injuries to the tail. Okay. So it seems like there's some oligodon in Taiwan uh, that eat turtle nests. Didn't we, haven't we done this this paper, this turtle, turtle defending egg paper? Yeah, yeah, we have, haven't we? Yeah, and it seems as though that must be where I got this idea. They battle yeah. as well as having seen... But then that's slightly different to so, male yeah. combat in Thailand where there doesn't, you know, you don't have that concentration of resources... But that being said, you still got an example of combat using the teeth. So that mitigates yeah. my um, doubt because of the high costs from getting bitten. So, <laughs> wow. yeah. So there we go. It wasn't just based on a thought. It was based on something we read and covered on the podcast, but both subsequently forgotten. <laughs> hey, man, the more co- podcasts the we do, crumbles. the more we've got to forget. Yeah, this is it. That's a good way to look at it. I'm privileged to have forgotten as much as I've yeah. forgotten. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there we go. Yeah, And actually, just glancing over this paper, one of the females had had its tail completely severed off post-cloaca. So that's pretty mad. Like, potentially, I guess that was due to an injury and infection, right? yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's an example of the damage these things can do. So, yeah, the teeth... Yeah, oligodon little savages, basically, which... Um, depending on your kind of opinion of animals which battle, is either more or less reason to like them. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and they're good-looking snakes, too. Um, in classic Oligodon style, they appear to have no or very limited neck. Um, these guys are a dark, mottled brown, I would say. Uh, eventually, they're black and white, sort of half checkerboard, like heading towards checkerboard, but not quite being perfect. On the top, got some nice head markings, sort of a chevron facing the front of the nose. And these guys have this beautiful orange line going along the very 
top of their back, which is segmented occasionally by darker black splotches cutting across the body. How big are these guys? How, 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 if I was picturing one in my mind, how, how big would they be? It's really how big is this guy, because there's only one known to right. science. Um, um, it was 582 millimetres total length. 582. So nearly 60 centimetres. So pretty reasonable size. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, It's about five times like... bigger than the Oligodon I saw the other day. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. I've got to say, one thing I notice about this paper is that the drawings of the hemipene are the nicest hemipene drawings I've seen. And you are an aficionado. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say I was an aficionado. Let's just say I've probably seen more hemipenes than most. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, they've taken something which... Because they've put the drawings next to the actual life photograph. And it's like... I mean, it's just a masterpiece, really. I mean, the hemipene itself looks like what you might find discarded at the bottom of a deep fat fryer after frying a, a large batch of chicken nuggets. It's just this sort of orange, battered, creased thing. But the drawing, I mean, it just looks remarkable. It just looks like some beautiful coral with stippling and all sorts. So... Yeah, I just thought it was worth mentioning. Platon Yashenko drew those, and they're like really, really cool. Well, and that's that's the benefit of illustration over photography. A lot of the times, I mean, I, certainly field guides and things. I feel like illustrations can draw your attention to field marks better than a series of photographs can. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I've been doing a load of moth trapping in my garden during lockdown. We built a moth trap, and um, well, my mate Jamie moved in. Big up, Jamie. Give you a shout out on the podcast. <laughs> and uh, he, yeah, he's like a moth expert. He did his PhD on moths. And so he basically knew how to build a moth trap. We had some materials. It's just a light with like um, a box around it and then two sheets of perspex mm -hmm. that form like a hole in the middle over the light so that once the moths fall in, it's kind of like a same way a crab or a lobster pot works, only the opening's a bit wider because there's a light inside it. And they kind of enter, go underneath, get stuck. But yeah, we've caught like 30 species of moths. Dang. Yeah, and some awesome ones as well, like elephant hawk moths, little elephant hawk moths. Um, what's the one called? <laughs> my, my, my recall for moth names is terrible. But um, there's one, the one which kept on changing during the Industrial Revolution, the speckled moth, whatever it's called. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was quite cool to see a textbook moth. But anyway, the point I'm making is uh, moths... They're very consistent with their coloration for the most part. There's a few species which are variable, but for the most part, they're like extremely consistent in the way they look. And so in the field guides that we had, the um, the drawings are like incredibly detailed and nuanced based on like the sort of little patterns that the moths have. And it, it's just great fun IDing moths because you're basically just flicking through until you find the picture which perfectly matches. And there'll be lots of similar ones, but there'll be one which is like the perfect match to your moth <laughs> and just picking out like the tiny characters which allow you to do that is really really satisfying yeah, the photograph so, might yeah. not have those highlighted in a way that makes it so visible right exactly <laughs> yeah there's definitely a massive knack to that and it is cool it's really cool i had a lot of fun i've got a massively massive new respect for moths excellent as you trapped them yeah no yeah trapped them but you know they all got let go and uh, they act weird in the daytime they just stay put they i think daylight is like a massive disincentive for them to fly so we were just like tucking them under things <laughs> keep them safe get their strength back. yeah 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 but no 
it was cool. But yeah, I don't know. That was a long diatribe about scientific drawing, which is good, which is news to no one. <laughs> um, yeah. Have you got anything else on this this species of the bi week, or are we probably talk about the hemipenes for a few more minutes? But I think we've pretty much okay. done it. Wow. Oh, there was a little bit more habitat oh, information, yes. wasn't there? The animal was found on the ground in leaf litter on the edge of the mixed pine forest. Um, Classic oligodon. Yeah, literally. Apparently there's quite a lot of livestock in the area as well, which they're obviously uh, living alongside, at least for the time well, being. Could be um, good news then. If they're, if they're tolerant of slightly more disturbed habitat, that might, means they're, might mean they're in a better position going forward. Yeah, it's good to be optimistic about that kind of thing. Um and yeah, we didn't actually say what its common name is. Long-snouted kukri snake, which is perfect. On account of its long snout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the name, I have to say, I really enjoy as well. Oligodon rostralis. Cool. So there we go. Uh, that concludes our episode on Samboas and then subsequently Oligodon. Unfortunately, we couldn't do a new species of Sambo because we there was one described a few weeks ago, but we already covered it because <laughs> how often do you get an opportunity yeah, of- <laughs> to do that? <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, uh, but yeah, thanks very much to Philip Iavino, who was our Patreon, who requested that. And if you want to do the same thing, you can uh, find us on Patreon. Just Google it. And uh, yeah, if you donate, you can pick a podcast episode, which is a fun thing to do. Have we got any other business? Uh, Yeah, I have a little bit of uh, any other business. I wanted to follow up on, well, part follow up, part, uh, part was prompted uh, by an email we got from Eric. Um, I wanted to draw attention. Well, no, don't even draw attention to just make sure everybody listening is aware because I've, you see it come over every now and again. Of, I would like to read this scientific paper. Person goes, finds scientific paper. It's sitting there. It's behind a paywall. And it's like, Hey, pay us 30 bucks and you can read this paper for 24 hours. Um, and I wanted to make sure that absolutely everybody's listening is fully aware do not pay these publishers their money for access to that paper don't do it those those prices are outrageous and stupid and i don't even know why they're set so high these publishers get all their money from libraries and things none of that money goes to any authors you're not essentially paying that money is not supporting science in any particularly meaningful way don't do it i don't know how how I, I don't know what people know about how uh, how journals get transferred and things, but basically, if you've got a journal article, you're like, hmm, I'd like to read that. If it's not open access, i.e. you can't find a, a version of it behind, um, as in you can only find versions of it behind paywalls and things, there are other ways of getting them. Uh, sometimes they've been posted openly on the author's websites and things. A lot of publishers allow people to put just one version up on institutional or personal uh, online storage. And there is a Chrome extension, I believe, called Unpaywall, which can help you find those sort of things. Sometimes Google Scholar will help you find open versions of it. But something that may not be as widely known is you can just straight up contact the authors asking for a copy, and they are allowed to give you a copy. So in the interest of trying to boost accessibility and making sure people know the avenues to get these papers, unpaywall, uh, some Google Scholar searches, maybe getting lucky and it's uh, been posted previously as a un untypeset version before it was sent to a publisher. Um, but if all those fails, you can always get in touch with the author, say, hey, 
I'm interested in this paper, saw it on whatever, you know, a, sent a sentence of background and politely ask for the paper and, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the authors will send you a version. I feel like it's extremely likely they will. They always will. Always, always. Anyone who has ever asked for a paper is going to get I've it. I've only had one instance, one instance where someone has said no. Oh, yeah, that happened to me as well. The same right. person said and no. That and that it. person, that person's just whatever, man. Like, it's super, yeah, that was super, stupid. super unlikely. We got it anyway because there are, yeah. <laughs> We're obviously skirting around the real easiest way to get papers. Um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I'm actually not afraid to just say it on the podcast, man. I'll take this flack for it if any yeah. comes. Yeah, you can just use the other way, which isn't, you know, it's not necessarily legal. Um, and people have different feelings about that. But I think in the case of actually just disseminating research, it's a massive boon for the scientific community because this stuff should be able to be read by well, everyone. Especially, especially you when just... you're getting it, like, it's not just people not in science that can't access these papers. It's people in science at institutions that don't have the money to pay for the absorbent subscriptions to these journals. Like, it's, Absolutely, it's yeah. more than just, yeah. So, yeah, there is a website. Um, it's called SciHub. And, yeah, it basically will just pirate any paper that you want ever. Pretty just much. Paste the, paste the DOI into it. And it will, I would say, 95 times out of 100. Sometimes Zootaxa finds a way to evade it, but never for very long. Um, and, yeah, you can uh, you can get it there. Yeah, yeah. That was, that, was, that was all I wanted to bring up, was making sure people uh, are aware of avenues to get a hold of these papers. Um I suppose if you're having consistent trouble, you probably just get in touch with us too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can't imagine we're going to be flooded by requests. No, so not that we, we don't have any special pilots. access to anything. Certainly I don't. But uh, but yeah, don't ever be satisfied with not being able to read a paper, I think is the take home yeah. message, because you absolutely can all the time, every single time. Don't let anything stop you if you are trying to find yeah. something you want to read. Someone will be able to get you access, be that a website or be that... <laughs> You know, someone closer to the source. Be that an author, be yeah. that co-author, yeah. be that. Cool. Uh, I've got so many other business. Um, oh, yes. So we had an email from Mark Goodwin. Uh, said some nice things about the podcast so thanks and we asked for corrections which actually we are doing less and less frequently so if you've heard us get anything wrong send us some corrections please uh, and apparently in, all the way back in episode 5 we asserted a common mistake so we said Gila Monster's name Heloderma meant sun lizard which sounds like something I might have said but it was you know three years ago so we'll let it fly <laughs> but apparently heloderma is deceptive because the prefix is the prefix is greek not latin so helo is greek for the small head of a nail like a construction nail so it actually means studded skin so it means nail and then derma oh. skin so studded oh, that skin that makes the name even not... better though because it works in both latin and greek whether you're right or, or mm. wrong whether you're latin or greek yeah yeah yeah, it's nice, isn't it? And it, the, if you look at one, they do have really studded skin. So, very cool. Heads, yeah. So, yeah. Um, thanks for that, Mark. And I had some more turtle news from Chris, our dog-sniffing turtles guy. Famous for having <laughs> yeah. Yeah. had pet dogs that, yeah, sniff out turtles. So, in a previous episode, we were talking about uh, dogs being really, really good, way better than humans, as you might expect, at finding tortoises and sniffing them out. And sure enough, there's another example of this going on. And um, 
this was Boykin Spaniels, and what, Spaniels? it was taking place. Boykin Spaniels. Boykin. I think they're quite a new Ooh. breed. Yeah, but this was in Illinois Nature Preserve. Uh, sorry, in as part of Illinois Nature Preserves Commission, somewhere in Illinois, in a um, in a yeah private some private and private. Where is it? Okay, so it's a, it's on a it's on across various different lands in Illinois, but basically, yeah, this guy goes out with his Boykin spaniels and yeah manages to find some um, box turtles, ornate box cool. turtles, um, yeah, and it's really cool. And there's some nice photos of these Boykin spaniels with the turtles in their mouths, oh, <laughs> just like walking very, around. Very gently, <laughs> hasten to remind people. Oh yeah, yeah, they've got the super soft bite, um, so. Well, soft mouth. It's not their proper bite. But yeah, there's a there's a funny photo of like uh, the dog's name is Jenny Wren, and she's just like standing in the grass, uh, cuddled by a kid, and yeah, the turtle's in her mouth. <laughs> she just looks really pleased. <laughs> well, nice. rightly so. But yeah, it's obviously catching on this turtles and dogs thing. Well, it's probably not so much as catching on, but we've been yes, aware of it. More visible. Um, yeah, which is cool. It's good to see. So yeah, thanks. Well, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for everybody uh, for their emails. So yeah, very. Yeah, it's cool. Good. <laughs> yeah, we've been getting tons of stuff coming in recently. It's really nice. So uh, send us an email about Where whatever. would they send that email if they were, want, you know, if people wanted to send an email? So herphighlights at gmail.com or we're on Facebook or Twitter. Um, yeah, you can get in touch with us any of those ways. I think that pretty much concludes this episode. I think it? so. I think we had a nice chat about sandbows, uh, what they eat, what's going on with their, their live burring versus egg laying. So a couple of couple of scales, cool findings, cool papers. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Um, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for yeah, listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Catch everybody in two weeks' time. I saw, I saw one in the station when I was there. It was um, wow. This is going to be some like really in, in niche detail. Really, it'll only interest you. But <laughs> the um, you know, as you come up from Snake House, there's that big building on the left, just as you go up the stairs. If you're walking towards the canteen, uh-huh. yeah, there was one under that building living there. I saw it crawling out of one hole and going into another. Yeah, hole. just dwelling under all the buildings. It's lovely. Yeah, and it's safe and, from um, frogs. I guess.